Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was for March 4th, 2019. So, as promised, uh, we're actually posting this. I'll be posting this a day earlier than usual because uh, I have an interview for you guys uh, on last week's big Donald Trump Kim Jong Un summit in North Korea. Uh, I'm going to be speaking via Skype here in a minute with John Carl Baker. Uh, John is the nuclear field coordinator and senior program officer at Plowshares Fund. Uh, he's responsible for Plowshares North Korea portfolio, uh, the grants and strategies and uh, the work that Plowshares does with other NGOs to uh, around North Korea. Uh, he has a PhD in cultural studies from George Mason University, an MA in American studies from the University of South Florida, uh, and his writing has appeared in places like The New Republic, The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, The National Interest, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, so I'm very excited to have him. He's uh, definitely going to be able to tell us more about what happened in Hanoi. And more importantly, what I want to talk to him about is the uh, unfortunate history of uh, U.S.-North Korea diplomacy, at least back to, to the Clinton administration when you know the nuclear issue really became a, a major one. And that was sort of the first time the United States actually approached uh, maybe cutting a deal with the North Koreans. And, and of course, we know that didn't work out so well. Uh, so John's going to talk to us about that. He's going to talk to us about what happened in Hanoi. He's going to talk to us about uh, what should be happening. And I think he's got some interesting things to say about who should be leading the diplomatic effort with North Korea, and it's not the United States. Uh, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I hope it'll be a, a good one, and uh, I'll get him on the line, and we'll start in a minute. Okay, I'm joined by John Carl Baker of the Plowshares Fund. John, thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, you're here to help us understand what's happening <laughs> with North Korea, uh, after last week's <laughs> summit in Hanoi, which uh, didn't go as planned, I take it. Uh, but before we get into uh, the current engagement, or maybe lack thereof now, between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, I was hoping that you could walk us through the history of North Korea-U.S. diplomacy, at least around the nuclear issue. Uh, going back to the Clinton administration and, and you know, the couple of times that uh, the United States has approached some, some sort of a deal with North Korea only to have it kind of uh, fall apart at some stage in the process. Sure. Um, essentially, the kind of modern status of U.S. DPRK relations goes back to the Clinton era. And um, it goes back to the very early 90s um, when there was an attempt to uh, bridge the gap in relations and actually open up kind of a different chapter in the relationship. This was the end of the, you know, after the end of the Cold War. I think there was a moment of hope that um, some of the earlier uh, socialist states would kind of change and reform in some way. Um, and there were also real legitimate fears about the North Korean nuclear weapons program. And there was a, uh, an attempt by the Clinton administration, I think a, a quite right one, uh, to try to stop this program before it really become, became extant. And uh, as a result of that, uh, those overtures, uh, there was an agreement that's called the Agreed Framework uh, in the 1990s. I think it started in, uh, officially in 1994, when it was the result of a couple of years of engagement. And this was an agreement in which the North would um, limit its weapons program uh, in exchange for some kind of energy help from the U.S. and South Korea. Uh, but uh, like many things, um, it was also um, subject to the volatility of U.S. politics. And it turns out that dealing with the North Koreans was not very popular uh, in the Republican Party. And uh, when Gingrich got in in the 94 elections, uh, there, the new uh, kind of Republican government, Republican majority, uh, really did its best to slow um, the details of the deal down. It made it much more difficult for the U.S. to meet its end of the bargain. Um, and relations kind of declined a bit. And uh, the, the North Koreans aren't without blame either. 
they uh, had some facilities that were undeclared. Um, they, you know, are not exactly known for <laughs> uh, calm rhetoric in a lot of ways. And so there were kind of real issues with the deal, but it did actually accomplish what it was, uh, what it set out to do. Um, it stopped their, really halted their production of fissile material for a while, a pretty substantial while. And, uh, you know, it was a deal in play for several years. And at the end of the 1990s, there was an even more uh, kind of substantive extension, extension of it uh, that's called the Perry process, where the U.S. was trying to limit um, the North Korean ballistic missile program, which is, of course, the thing that is kind of at the heart of what's happening now, our fears of a North Korean ICBM. And there were actually some real gains at the end of the 1990s. Um, and the Clinton administration apparently faced this choice where they could either um, go all in on their um, diplomacy with North Korea, in which like Bill Clinton would actually go to North Korea and potentially you know, meet with uh, or have some meeting with, with uh, the North Korean leader, then Kim Jong-il. Um, but he didn't do that. He, uh, the Clinton administration went uh, instead um, the Israel-Palestine route. And um, there were some kind of... I don't know, uh, issues as a result of that, one of which is that they had to hand off the diplomacy to the W administration. And uh, there were some folks in the W administration who were eager to continue it, but there were also a lot who were completely opposed to it. And uh, ultimately what happened, of course, is that... Some uh, of them currently working in the Trump administration. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> uh, and ultimately what happened was that uh, there was the famous Axis of Evil speech, I think that was 2002, and... Uh, you know, the W administration opted to stop talking to North Korea and then it kind of uh, tarred North Korea with this uh, ridiculous label uh, and threw it in with completely unrelated uh, other states um, and relations declined. And then four years later, you have the first North Korean nuclear weapons test. Um, and I guess to the W administration's credit, I guess they did try to restart talks. Uh, there was the six party talks. Um, later in the W years. And, you know, they like, maybe saw the error of their ways or something. But um, at that point, uh, it's a little bit difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. And uh, really, since then, um, relations between the US and North Korea have not been particularly good. There were attempts in the Obama in the Obama years to um, create what was called the Leap Day Agreement. Um, this was another thing that kind of fell apart at the last minute. And really, relations have not been good. Um, in my view, since the Clinton era, I think that we've really been we've seen several decades now or coming up on two decades of um, just very bad relations between the U.S. and North Korea, which is part of the reason why it's actually encouraging that there are talks happening right now, even if, unfortunately, they're led by this complete buffoon that we have in the White House. <laughs> so um, I, if you can you go in a little to a little more detail about the Obama administration's approach, because I I mean, my uh, sort of, I, I was sort of aware of the Clinton negotiations back in the 90s and that they sort of got derailed by the Bush administration. But I don't know if it was because I spent most of the Obama administration thinking or, you know, in grad school for one thing and then like thinking about the Iran deal and that area of diplomacy for the rest of it. But uh, my my sense of how much the Obama administration actually engaged North Korea is maybe not great because it seems like they didn't really want to touch that issue very closely. Yeah. Like they didn't really spend a lot of time on it. But if but you can you can fill in the gaps there. No, I think that's fair. I mean, they just had other priorities, and there there is, I guess you know we have to say that there is always a capacity issue in administrations. Um, people who serve in them always say this. You know, you can only pick a few issue areas to really focus on. And obviously the Iran deal was this incredible diplomatic agreement. And I'm extremely glad that it exists, uh, even if the U.S. is currently in violation of it. But uh, that may be part of the reason why the yeah the, the Obama administration de-emphasized relations with North Korea. It was a much trickier problem, too, in a lot of ways. Once nuclear weapons actually exist, um, it's just a much messier sort of engagement that's necessary. And the other thing, too, is that I think it's only in the last few years, really recently, like like this year, um, that you've heard uh, folks in the U.S. foreign policy establishment start to talk about actually living with a no, uh, nuclear North Korea um, and admitting that 
uh, <laughs> whatever it is, 13 years on. Yes, indeed, <laughs> North Korea is a nuclear weapons power, and we probably need to kind of deal with it as it is, and not as this fantasy, and not have this fantasy that we can kind of denuclearize it overnight. The, as for the substance of the Obama administration's approach, they had this technique called strategic patience. They were sort of waiting out the North Korean regime in a lot of ways. There were there are people who have believed and do believe that it's all constantly on the brink of collapse. I think that's a rather foolhardy. Any day now, it's, it's been not... 50, 60 years, but any day now, they're, they're <laughs> right. Gonna, they're gonna go yeah, the I mean, this is a regime that's been in power for yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, seventy years. Uh, I don't think it's going away anytime soon, um, and we can't depend on that uh, anyway. So they they tried to wait it out to some extent, and they they. You know, they, it just didn't work. And I think also uh, to, you know, not to defend the Obama administration a little, but I think the North Korean state um, also was not particularly keen on engagement at the time. Uh, Kim Jong-un came in. Uh, there was something of a kind of withdrawal uh, into itself and in that the state really, really concentrated on building up its nuclear weapons program and, and on building up its ballistic missile program. And honestly, we're seeing the fruits of that now. I mean, part of the reason right. why this huge diplomatic opening exists um, is because the, the North Koreans have an, uh, at least a plausible ICBM capability that they can now hit the United States or, or right, feasibly and, could hit the United States. And, and may so have tested that's a, a very good negotiating bomb. position to be in. Right. And they may have tested a hydrogen bomb. So, yeah. Exactly. Uh, right. they've, they've hit their marks, I guess. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's a good point, I think, about the internal North Korean dynamics because there were, I mean, there's some evidence that, uh, you know, he had to come into power and then spend some time purging the people who were right. <laughs> opposing him and you know kind of consolidating his control so uh maybe not the best time to engage with the united states diplomatically i guess that's right oh. um and and it's it's an interesting kind of thing to think about the fact that even though there is no organized resistance within north korea to the regime the regime still has its own internal politics that uh, has to be dealt with. And if you are a new dictator, uh, you have to think about consolidating your own position um, and uh, dealing with folks who may not be inclined to agree with you. And I, I think there are many North Korea watchers who feel that's still a thing that's happening in North Korea, that Kim Jong-un is you know, trying to allay the fears of hardliners in his own administration who don't want to trust the United States and don't want to deal with them uh, and who might be, you know, even more keen on the nuclear weapons program right. than he is. Right. So it's it's something to bear in mind when these talks are going on. So, all right. So we, we're th through the Obama administration. To help me help everybody understand how we got from uh, tweets about the fire and fury that we're going to rain down on North Korea. Uh, to where we are now, where there have been two summits between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, uh, a.k.a. Little Rocket Man. Uh, what was the process by which we got from what was in 2017 uh, kind of some scary rhetoric and not coming from North Korea? I mean, usually you think, oh, the provocation's coming from the other, you know, it's coming from inside the house in this case. Um, and how we got from there to... Uh, a place where the two of them were sitting down first in Singapore and then last week in Hanoi? Well, it has been a long and torturous process. <laughs> uh, 20, 2017 was legitimately terrifying. And occasionally you will hear people say like, oh, well, it was overblown. There wasn't really the possibility of a war. I think that's complete garbage. Uh, I think it's very clear that there were elements in the administration, including McMaster, uh, who I completely forgot about <laughs> until recently. And then there's been some more news coming out about him. And, and he was clearly one of the folks in the administration who were angling for some kind of military action against North Korea. And uh, for those of us in the kind of peace and security community in D.C., that's a horrifying notion because, honestly, the, the, the likelihood of escalation is huge. Um, it, it's an unbelievably risky idea, and, the, and a war on the Korean Peninsula would be terrifying, uh, and it would be a complete catastrophe. I mean, we're talking about millions of dead, the world economy wrecked in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it would be an awful, awful move. And it's horrifying that the people in the administration were even considering this. Do you think... Uh, the good yeah, news is the I, cooler heads prevail. Let me stop you for just a second before we go further into the, the Trump journey. <laughs> do, do you think that that's something that people in the United States understand that in the event of a conflict between 
North Korea and the United States, even if North Korea couldn't get off an ICBM and actually strike an American target, that there would still be millions of people killed in South Korea, probably in Japan. Like, do you think that registers with people, or do you find that that's something sort of abstract? You mean the the possibility of a nuclear strike, like in the region, as opposed to not even uh, a nuclear strike. I mean, the, uh, artillery strikes on Seoul. I mean, oh. they could they could you know rain uh, hundreds of warheads down on Seoul in in minutes. That would be impossible for people to to take shelter from if it happened quickly. Like, do you do you find that people have a hard time understanding that, or is that something that that people are aware of and concerned about? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think people quite understand it. And and I guess I should specify, too, like, I, I think, you know, when we talk about millions dead, we really are talking, I mean, if, if that possibility, we are kind of talking about uh, the possibility of a nuclear war. Um, but even, I mean, this is such a ridiculous numbers game to play. I mean, even if, if there was a, a war in which, let's say, hundreds of thousands have died or something, I mean, this would still be a terrible uh, undertaking. And that could feasibly happen if you had a conventional war that somehow did not turn nuclear in the area. Uh, because yeah, I mean the 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 both sides have unbelievable mo- uh, military capabilities. Um, if you had a war between North and South, I mean there there would be just total uh, all kinds of mass death and destruction. Uh, you're right that there's a possibility that Japan could get involved, um, and then there's always the possibility that it could spiral out of control. I I don't think people quite understand that. I think that uh, I will say that I I think because the issue's been in the news more, um, it's people are coming to get that. And I, at least from our side uh, of the kind of diplomatic debate, we do try to make it clear that this is just not a problem that can be solved with uh, any kind of military action. It just th- that whole idea just simply makes no sense. The risk is too high. It wouldn't solve the problem in the first place if your idea is to if your aim is to get rid of the nuclear weapons program. Um, and it's just not worth pursuing. This has to be done diplomatically. And that means that, you know, it, the U.S., is going to and Japan and South Korea uh, are may have to give up some things they don't really want to give up. They're going to have to go to an uncomfortable place if they really want to make the region and the world a bit more secure. And that's the thing that I think is still a battle that's ongoing in the foreign policy community. Okay. All right. So I'm sorry I, I interrupted your your uh, narrative about Trump, but I that that was a point that you since you brought it up, I wanted to kind of uh, dig into. But go ahead. Uh, oh, that's fine. Um, so, so 2017 was very scary. Uh, let's see what happened. Trump went to the floor of the UN and essentially threatened to eradicate North Korea. Um, the two sides exchanged a whole bunch of threats, and and really this was largely led by the United States. I mean, I think I think Trump bears a lot of the blame for this. Um, North Korea was doing missile tests for for much of the year, which which were certainly provocative and they were bothering people a lot. But Trump did not respond to these provocations very well. Um, he did it with a lot of threats and bluster. And uh, there was the potential for a war. And really, throughout 2017, uh, people were bracing for that. And I can say that f- for me and for the organization that I work for, Plowshares Fund, you know, we were taking very seriously the idea that there could be a war on the Korean Peninsula, uh, a war with nuclear implications. And our own kind of advocacy and the framing of a lot of the work we did back then was in a much more anti-war register. But then... Uh, Towards the end of 2017, and definitely by January of 2018, things dramatically changed. Kim Jong-un gave his New Year's speech, which was much more conciliatory towards the South. Um, and it was clear that he was trying to open up um, negotiations, open up a diplomatic window that hadn't existed before. And there were people kind of wondering, oh, well, why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? Well, one of the biggest reasons is that he's in an extremely good uh, negotiating position, because in late 2017, uh, the North Koreans tested what is effectively an ICBM. Um, They likely have the capability of putting a nuclear weapon on it and reaching the United States. Is it a perfect ICBM? Is it something that we know is completely reliable? Not really. But it's a, I think I once heard it referred to as a political deterrent. You know, it might as well be right. It's it's effectively uh, the same as having an incredibly reliable uh, missile capability. And the U.S. has to take that seriously. So it, it went in, in January uh, 2018, the state kind of changed tack. Um, in the South, uh, elected in 2017 was the Moon Jae-in government, which ran on a policy of trying to engage the North. So the North knew that um, if it was a little more receptive to these overtures, that the, the South would also be receptive. 
And um, then there was this kind of explosion of diplomatic occurrences. And you had um, the uh, you had the um, uh, detente related to uh, the Olympics. You had the Koreas working together um, and participating together in events. You had a whole series of sports exchanges and cultural exchanges. And then following on from that great um, explosion of kind of cultural diplomacy um, during the Olympics, you had a bunch of inter-Korean talks um, that continued. You have a whole series of exchanges. We've had reunions of divided families. I mean, there's just been a, a, um, just a parade of really, really interesting and cool and encouraging inter-Korean projects since that spring. And that whole process has continued, um, even as there has been uh, some engagement between the U.S. And, and North Korea. And that's encouraging. It's really the inner Korean track that I think is so um, fascinating. And it's the thing that really could bear um, historical fruit um, in the next year or two. But the issue is that this is dependent on, I think, it's dependent on progress between the U.S. and North Korea when it comes to their nuclear weapons program. Uh, the South Korean president seems to understand this. So the process is very, very delicate. There's two different tracks that are related to one another. And if there isn't a whole lot of progress on the U.S.-North Korea diplomatic track, it could adversely impact this, um, the inter-Korean track as well. And, and then we could, unfortunately, go back to uh, the tensions of 2017. That's not out of the question. Um, so I think it's very important that we, uh, as Americans, do what we can to pressure our own government to take the process seriously, engage with the North Koreans in a realistic manner, uh, because you know this isn't just an American matter. It's not something just that's just between North Korea and the United States. They're, they're, you know, the, South Korea has a huge stake in this process, and Koreans in general have a huge stake in this process. And I feel like we, um, as kind of uh, folks in the United States who support diplomacy, really need to understand that impl the, the implications of what we're doing, and and that this isn't just a matter of uh, proliferation um, and disarmament. It's something that has um, huge historical uh, implications for the divided peninsula. And we can do our part to really facilitate reconciliation there. That's something I want to talk about more um, in a few minutes. The sort of the idea of letting the, the Korean process, like the, letting the process be led by Koreans and, and the United States taking more of a support position. Um, but before we get there, I do want to talk about what happened last week in Hanoi and, you know, Trump's decision to get up and walk out, which uh, initially was because Kim was supposedly making uh, unreasonable demands. And now he's tweeting about how it might have been because of the Cohen here. <laughs> it's just like right. it's a mess, uh, just like the inside of Donald Trump's cranium. Um, but what how did we get to that point. I, 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 I hate to say this because it sounds like one of those people who's like, uh, well, I supported the Iraq war. I just thought the Bush administration went about it the wrong way. Like, I support this diplomatic process. I support talking with North Korea. But I do think that the way Trump has done it has been completely bizarre and, and detrimental to actually making any kind of progress uh, and I think the failures uh, of last week's summit were kind of built into the way he's approached this thing where there have been no real like technical talks no preliminary talks it's just put these two guys in a room together and see what happens which is how you get one of them getting up and walking out because they don't know what they're in there to talk about yet uh, so if you could talk about that and, and how you see the negotiating process having gone and whether you, you think that it's been, um, what, what do you think have been the positive aspects and the negative aspects and, and what, what it did you know, bring us to the point where Trump got up and walked out and left basically the future of this diplomatic initiative kind of in limbo? That's a great question. Um... I, I think the negative aspects are extremely clear, and I completely agree with everything you said. I mean, the, the Trump administration has been chaotic, it's been erratic, it's been incompetent, it's had uh, completely fantastic aims that there's just no way it could possibly accomplish, um, like for a long time, and apparently still at the summit. They're trying to bring up this, they're trying to accomplish some grand bargain in which the North Korean 
the North Koreans would simply give up uh, their weapons program entirely uh, in exchange for some sanctions relief from the from the United States. I mean, uh, that's, uh, I guess, uh, 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 I understand the aim uh, and I admire their exuberance, but there's simply no way that that's going to happen. And the United States needs to give up this fantasy that it can disarm North Korea overnight. It needs to pursue much more kind of limited aims. And we were hoping that actually there had been uh, that that was something they were going to pursue. I mean, in the lead up to the summit. Uh, there were leaked details of a potential agreement in which there'd be an end of war declaration. Uh, the U.S. and DPRK would open liaison offices. Uh, right now, the U.S. and North Korea don't have uh, official diplomatic relations, um, and and that and that the U.S. Uh, and that the North Koreans would shut down Yongbyon in exchange for sanctions relief from the United States. I mean, it was a very feasible deal. Uh, it made a lot of sense to us. So it's it, it's disturbing that they went to the summit and uh, the. the the uh, the Americans apparently didn't want to go for the North Korean deal, and then instead proposed this completely ridiculous maximalist deal in which the North would give up its program entirely in exchange for the same thing that the North the North Koreans wanted in the first place, uh, which is the relaxation of uh, five uh, UN Security Council sanctions since 2016. Uh, that deal has had no chance of passing, and the North Koreans quite rightly said something in response like, the trust isn't there. There is no trust. And I think we should take them at their word there. I mean, this is a state that the U.S. has been opposed to essentially since it was founded. Um, and uh, the North Koreans believed, believe not incorrectly, that they're besieged by the entire world. Uh, and so you're not going to just get rid of that kind of animosity overnight. You have to pursue interim steps, which the North, what the Trump administration just isn't doing with any kind of efficiency um, and 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 uh, and strategy. Uh, so you know the negative qualities of the Trump administration's diplomacy are very apparent. Um, that said, though, I do think that the you know the opening should be supported, and there are better and worse ways of being critical of the process. I think so much of the criticism has been extremely dismissive. Um, it's been kind of just reliant on jokes and mocking Trump for what he's doing. It's sort of been arranged around taking political cheap shots instead of actually making substantive critiques of the process. And there are real critiques to be made. I mean, like all the things we just said are, are some of them. And the other thing about that too, is that I think what's, what's frustrating, right, is that there are glimmers of something extremely positive in what Trump is doing. Like Trump doesn't know why, and he doesn't understand uh, why what he's doing might be kind of commendable in this messed up <laughs> sort of way. <laughs> but he's but he's doing things that the U.S. foreign policy establishment finds appalling, but they shouldn't. Like like talking to North Korea as a nuclear weapons power. We don't have to officially recognize them, like de jure recognition as a nuclear weapons state. But let's be real. They're a nuclear weapons state. They've had nuclear weapons since 2006, and they have an extremely technologically proficient program. And it's a real uh, risk, and it's something that we should be concerned about. It. But if you're concerned about it, you need to be realistic and try to take some kind of uh, pursue some really feasible near-term steps, like a production, like a freeze, right, uh, of their program where it stands. You know, that would at least stop it. Right now, it's just continuing, and it has no reason not to continue because we have no deal with them to try to contain it. Uh, but the Trump administration just isn't pursuing that. So, like. Trump's willingness to talk with them and uh, engage at a really high level is something that I think offends a lot of the U.S. foreign policy establishment. But there is this kind of kernel of truth there, which is that he's willing to go to places that they aren't. He's not beholden to the kind of sacred cows of U.S. foreign policy discourse. And it's because of he, he, he's just personally ignorant, right, <laughs> of, <laughs> right. of U.S. policy. Like... But I think for, for a lot of us who, who think that we have to fundamentally change our relationship with North Korea in order to make progress on the nuclear issue, he's unwittingly doing something that is actually kind of commendable. I wish that someone else was doing it. And I feel like there are lessons for the for the Democrats in particular here that they this was something that um, Joe and I wrote about a bit in our in our recent piece for Defense One. Like we were trying to say, like there there is really a lesson here that Trump and Moon in particular, because Moon is really the guy who's driving this process. They're going big. They're really trying to change the relationship um, with North Korea and pursue a deal that limits their nuclear weapons program. Like that's an extremely positive thing, and it may push the U.S. into some uncomfortable places, but. 
everything we've done in the past is, has just not worked out particularly well. And so we, we need to do something differently and just kind of putting our fingers in our ears and pretending that the North isn't going to continue to expand <laughs> its capability. And if we just uh, hold out for a better deal, maybe, maybe we'll get one is, is a fantasy. And we need to move on from that and actually pursue some like realistic uh, near-term gains because they're totally achievable. But in order to do that, we have to take some uh, uncomfortable steps and go to places that we, we haven't been in the past. And that's okay. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw the link to your Defense One Piece into the description so people can go read it. But, um, I, I mean, I, I I really like that piece that you and uh, Joe Cernzioni of Plowshares wrote uh, because it's some of the responses from the Democrats have been appalling to me. I mean, people like Chuck Schumer and the sort of national security Democrats, uh, you know, it's just like rejecting the idea of diplomacy out of hand, not even offering a, a, a helpful critique, but just how dare you talk to the North Koreans, which is just asinine to me. Um, but I, I wanted to ask uh, about one of the people who helped to wreck uh, the Clinton administration's outreach to North Korea uh, during the Bush administration, uh, who just happens to be Donald Trump's national security advisor now, and that's John Bolton. Um, I think part of the benefit to doing this via a more normal negotiations process is not just that it would get North Korea and the United States on the same page, but it would force the administration to get itself on the same page. Uh, and uh, part of the failure of, of last week's summit, I, I, I wonder about this. Uh, maybe, you know, how much of it was due to the fact that there are people in the administration who are you know, adamantly, stridently opposed to, to what Trump is doing. They won't talk about it. Bolton won't talk about it openly because he's not, uh, you know, he, he's trying to be the guy in Trump's ear and not offend him. Uh, but uh, Bolton in particular is is obviously opposed to this. He's made his whole career out of uh, opposing just this kind of outreach. Uh, do, you, do you feel like there's some internal tensions uh, in the administration that are, you know, helping to uh, complicate things? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's been internal tensions in the administration about North Korea since the administration took office. I mean, initially, those tensions were about whether or not to do military action. And in some ways, Bolton's opposition to diplomacy or his advocacy of a really ridiculous form of diplomacy because he hopes it will fail is, a, is an extension of that because really John Bolton is just a unapologetic uh, advocate of unilateral American power. And he's probably one of the few people in the world who would be completely ecstatic if we uh, engaged in military action uh, against North Korea and got uh, and created some new Korean War. So that's disheartening. But yes, I think the administration is really divided. I think they're divided about um, how much sanctions relief they're willing to offer um, or whether they're willing to offer sanctions relief at all, um, unless the North does something like completely dismantle its program, which is not going to happen overnight. Um, I think it's been encouraging to see uh, the administration special envoy, Steve Began, uh, talk. He, he talked recently in a speech at Stanford in, in a really um, savvy, smart, thoughtful way about North Korea. And it signaled to a lot of us on the outside that the administration is, is taking this a little more seriously. Um, I think Steve Began, you know, Steve Began is kind of a um, Republican uh, expert on this issue. Uh, he, I think, he worked for the uh, worked for John McCain for a while, um, and then uh, previously, I believe, he was at Ford Motor Company. Um, so he's kind of an interesting guy, and I've heard him speak a couple of times. And he's extremely, um, really thoughtful, pretty compelling. I think, uh, you know, I don't agree with him on everything, but you know, as a member of the Trump administration, he seems to have his act together. And it's discouraging that the administration is kind of undermining him by doing things like sending John Bolton to uh, to uh, the Hanoi summit and allowing John Bolton to influence 
policy where it's really not his place. I mean, Began is the point person for this, and he seems committed to the president's desire for diplomacy. And really, the administration needs to empower him. But he can't do that as long as it's still internally divided. I mean, honestly, even Trump is probably uh, contradictory on this. I mean, the guy contradicts himself all the time, so he may not be <laughs> of a single mind about how to do diplomacy either. Uh, but it's very clear that the administration is divided. I hope that ultimately uh, Began is kind of allowed to do his thing. And that would include uh, engaging in working level talks with the North Koreans. And to be honest, the North needs to be better about this, too. They they really kind of um, held him at arm's length for a while and uh, weren't engaging in working level talks. I think if those talks can get going again, that would be extremely encouraging because that's exactly where you're gonna hash out the details of a deal. It's it, There's something to be said for top-down diplomacy, I think, because North Korea is a dictatorship. And ultimately, if you wanna make policy change, it's a pretty good idea to talk to the dictator. But that said, uh, you can't have summit to summit forms of diplomacy. It just doesn't work <laughs> like that. There's not enough time to sit down at a table and and hash out all these like you know really complex details of any kind of non-proliferation agreement or, or or missile reductions or whatever missile limitations, um, so that's the sort of thing that has to happen in a smaller format with lower level people like Began like his counterpart in North Korea, uh, the, where they can really work through those things, come up with a deal that's acceptable to those sides, and then you know ultimately debut it at a summit. Um, it's but not not work on the details of it at a summit. And right. Then, lo and behold, it doesn't actually manifest into any kind of substantive agreement. That is clearly I mean, not working. The process so be much better like, if they got this started at the working level. Right. I mean, like the process to me is backwards. It's been uh, we have the summit and then everybody has to scramble and try to fill in the details of the vague statement uh, that Trump and Kim, you know, agree upon uh, instead of working out the details and then you have the summit to put the final touches on and kind of get right. the you know get the finishing uh the the finishing process done it, that that seems like the much more sensible way and, i mean in general it seems like the more sensible way to do it but especially when you're dealing with uh a, an unknown quantity in in kim to a certain degree and trump who is you know i mean his brain took a a smoke break 15 years ago and never came back you know you can't like you just can't depend on these two people in a room coming up with the the solution and then you know building off of that it's it seems ridiculous um so i want to ask you about uh ultimately how we get to a realistic outcome and what that realistic outcome might look like but i think the way to get to that kind of realistic settlement um, is something you've already t started talking about, you know, in in this interview. But but I'd like you to say more about it. The idea of letting uh, the Koreans lead this process, and and you know, you mentioned Moon Jae-in, who I think more than anybody is uh, damaged by what happened last week because his you know entire presidency has been about uh, building relations with the North, and now you know that's. Uh, all up in the air because the the diplomacy with the U.S. has kind of failed. Is, is there a way to um, separate the Korean, the inter-Korean dialogue uh, from the United States? Does it require the United States kind of uh, consciously taking a back seat, or you know, are there ways to to let the Korean process come to the fore here uh, and and worry about the the U.S. North Korea stuff kind of? Uh, after that's had a chance to work? It's an interesting question. I mean, my initial thought is that, no, you can't really extricate one from the other. Um, but that said, you can foreground one of them. And that's kind of how I think about this issue. To me, you know, I'm a nuclear weapons guy and I'm for disarmament. Um, but I also think that peace and disarmament are linked and that the inter-Korean uh, reconciliation process is really the thing that is going to change uh, the field entirely. And that if you really want to pursue an agreement that limits the Norse weapons program and potentially even rolls it back, you know, that's the, 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 the fact of inter-Korean reconciliation is the thing that's going to do that. 
And so I think the U.S. needs to understand that its um, unwillingness to pursue near-term aims when it comes to the North's nuclear weapons program is, you know, could potentially have an impact on these inter-Korean talks. Because um, if they get in the way, which is kind of what the threat is right now, like you just said, um, there hasn't been any progress. So now we don't know what's going to happen on these potential inter-Korean uh, kind of development projects. These projects require sanctions waivers that um, the U.S. is now not willing to offer. So the projects are sort of in limbo. Um, and if that process breaks down, if the inter-Korean process slows down, there's the potential that a, the North could get really uh, angry about it and uh, lessen its engagement with the South, potentially withdraw a bit from the process, and maybe even end it entirely. That's a possibility. There's also the possibility that uh, the government in the South and people in the South may blame the United States for not facilitating their own uh, reconciliation with the North enough. Like, the, the, In other words, that the United States has dropped the ball on its part of the deal, the nuclear talks, and, and that's going to... Uh, raise further tensions in the alliance. There already are some over Trump's uh, desire to make the North, to squeeze the North, the South Koreans uh, for the uh, uh, in the burden sharing talks that are going on about the U.S. military's presence there. Um, there was an interim deal reached there, but they're already going to have to negotiate. It was only for a year, so they're going to have to negotiate it like again starting next week or something. Um, so there's a there's already a whole bunch of tensions in the alliance right now. And I think that's one of the dangers, that if the U.S. really isn't pursuing these nuclear talks with kind of realistic aims in mind, um, they could break down. And the South is going to be faced with a question, uh, sort of a challenge. Like, does it does it debate breaking with the, with the U.S. in order to continue reconciliation with its um, kind of sister government in the North? Um, or does it go along with the process, even if that means that inter-Korean talks break down? And the diplomatic window closes. I mean, it's a real, it's a real challenge. And I think this is the kind of threat to the alliance that really exists. Uh, everybody acts like suspending military exercises and doing uh, kind of talks with North Korea, the thing that's threatening the alliance. That's completely wrong. Those are things that the South actually wants. But if we don't do those things, and we have these ridiculous maximalist aims for the nuclear talks, in which we're trying to get the North to denuclearize, you know, in a year or overnight or whatever. Um, that could uh, that itself could threaten our relationship with the South and could threaten the existence of the alliance. And I, that's something that I think the Trump administration should take seriously, and also observers on the outside should take seriously uh, as they're criticizing the Moon government for I don't know all sorts of silly things like saying it's uh, made up of apologists for the North or that um, you know it's not engaging in good faith or something like that. It just seems like such an an easy way, um, you know. The North Koreans themselves brought up the trust deficit between the U.S. and and North Korea. It seems like such an easy way to build up some trust to allow the two Koreas to you know interact with one another, and and you know over time that that kind of softens tensions, and uh, you know the United States is seen as kind of. Uh, letting the Koreans run <laughs> the Koreas instead of you yeah. know kind of lording it over everybody, uh, it just seems like it's such an easy kind of way to 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 build up some of that trust that you n actually need if you're ever going to convince North Korea to cap or you know I, I mean I reduce may be unrealistic but uh, to do something to to limit its nuclear program it, it's um, you know, it's it, it would be a waste not to allow that that process to continue, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, and this is, I think, one of the truths of the Moon Jae-in administration that is really interesting to me. You know, I don't think Moon Jae-in has any desire to, you know, kick U.S. troops out of South Korea or break the alliance or any of these ridiculous things that people like Gordon Chang claim on a, a regular basis. Um, but I do think what he wants is a more equal relationship with the United States. His presidency is really calling the United States to task. It's saying, yes, we are your partners in this region, and, and we take that notion of partnership very seriously. And this is what we want, and you have a role in it, and you need to kind of follow our lead here. Uh, and it's the U.S. is very uncomfortable with that. And it shows 
the fact that this relationship is not particularly equal and that we're a lot happier with the South Koreans when it's the conservatives in power who basically just do whatever the United States wants uh, when it comes to security matters anyway. So it, it, it's it's an interesting quandary for the United States. Um, and uh, the fact that there's been such resistance to Moon's diplomacy and Moon's desire for engagement with the North um, really speaks to uh, the kind of quasi-colonial view that a lot of U.S. foreign policy observers have of South Korea. They just think of it as a client state. So... What what is a realistic? What would a realistic solution to the North Korean nuclear issue, in your mind, uh, look like? Uh, and I guess we could start with what is the proper definition of denuclearization, because nobody really <laughs> seems to have a definition of denuclearization. You know, the United States has one that's basically a synonym for North Korean disarmament. North right. Korea clearly has another, which is very different. Um, you know, it's it seems impossible to imagine that North Korea would actually give up the nuclear program that it has now. It seems to me like the best you could hope for is to, uh, you know, get them to a place where they're comfortable putting a cap on it and, and you know, putting some uh, restrictions in place and not just kind of promising to cap it, but actually putting some verifiable restrictions in place. Um, what, what in your mind is sort of the, the most, what, what should people be trying to achieve as opposed to this insistence on full disarmament that seems like it's never going to happen and, and insisting on it is just detrimental to, uh, getting to a more positive place? Well, I would say first that I, do think denuclearization of the peninsula is a worthwhile long-term goal, but it's aspirational. And I don't think it should be something that overrides the possibility of realistic near-term steps that can be made that would make us all a lot safer and that would decrease tensions on the peninsula too. So I think you're right. Exactly what you said is correct. I think the idea of a freeze on uh, North Korean weapons production, so their fissile material too. Right now, there's a uh, they haven't tested uh, a, a nuclear weapon and they haven't tested a missile in over a year, uh, which is very very good. But at the same time, they're still producing fissile material, so there there would have to be some kind of verifiable cap on their production of fissile material. That that's that's a completely doable uh, deal. And if the U.S. was willing to wheel and deal a little bit trade a few things that maybe it doesn't want to right now, I think that's imminently achievable. And that would be a very, very, you know, good step. Uh, capping the program where it stands is a lot better than having it just continue to grow and grow and grow and grow, which is what's happening right now. And which is what and which is what will happen if the talks break down, too. So I think that's what people ought to be pursuing. Um, that said, though, I, I don't think we should lose sight of the long term goal. And um, one of the things that I've said before is that if you really want the North to denuclearize, you, you like totally, you have to understand that the trade-offs for that on the side of the U.S. are going to be very steep. And the U.S. doesn't want to make those trade-offs. Um, it doesn't want to adjust its military posture in Northeast Asia. Um, it doesn't want to cease doing the kind of bomber flights and things of that nature that the, that the North considers really provocative. Um, it doesn't want to adjust troop levels in South Korea. Um, these are all things that are going to have to be addressed if you want to get beyond just capping the North's program. And nobody in the United States, well, not nobody, but <laughs> nobody in the U.S. foreign policy establishment <laughs> wants to do that. Essentially, they they just want the North to, as you said, disarm kind of unilaterally. Um, and then, you know, maybe we'll change our relationship with them after they do that. And that's just not realistic. That's that's just not realistic. <laughs> so mean, the, the U.S. is faced with this kind of interesting quandary, which is that if it really wants what it says it wants, if it really wants to accomplish the denuclearization of North Korea and of the peninsula, um, it's going to have to do its part, too. That part of the peninsula is what the, the North always says. And what they mean by that is that the U.S. has obligations here, too. Um, the U.S. is going to have to adjust its force posture, might have to adjust troop levels, uh, might have to adjust all sorts of training exercises that it, that it conducts on the peninsula. Um, these are things that it's going to have to do if it wants to get beyond just interim steps. 
And I, I think it's, it's important to make that point because you can't get something for nothing. Um, and that, and the pursuit of that fantasy is one of the things that's gotten us to this point now, um, where the North is a nuclear power. It has, uh, an extremely, uh, like, uh, efficient, highly technological capability to launch ballistic missiles. And it's a real problem, but unless we are willing to make those or make a, are willing to make a series of trade-offs, um, to get rid of these things, um, that's how it's going to remain. And the U.S. needs to admit that, that if it really wants to accomplish these goals, it's going to have to trade some things. The, the deal, I mean, it seems like for the for, most of the foreign policy community here in the U.S., it's the deal that they're offering is, you know, you unilaterally disarm and we might think about lifting sanctions, which, right. is, which is just a crazy offer. I mean, nobody would accept that offer. But I, I want to particularly, and you know, this is kind of my own uh, hobby horse, I guess. But I wanted to to ask you about this. Um, we've talked about the fact that there is a, a huge trust deficit between these two countries. There have they've been, a, you know, uh, technically at war for decades, and there's this, uh, you know, kind of overarching. The United States has been trying to to put an end to North Korea, not just to North Korea's nuclear program or anything like that, but to North Korea for its entire existence. Uh, it's, I would argue that the trust gap uh, has gotten bigger, not because necessarily of anything that the Trump administration has done uh, directly with North Korea, but because of the way the Trump administration has handled its uh, the Iran deal. Uh, and if the offer, if the deal on offer here is... Um, you give up your nuclear program and we will lift sanctions. And the only example of a deal like that currently in anybody's mind is the Iran deal, which the United States violated, you know, as soon as Donald Trump could justify violating it. Why would the North Koreans have any reason to trust? Uh, and, you know, we can say, oh, they can wait until a new administration comes in. But, you know, I don't, to what de- I don't know to what degree... Uh, they're thinking about it in those kind of granular terms, uh, you know, as far as U.S. politics are concerned. Uh, but how much damage theoretically has been done uh, by the violation of the Iran deal and sort of the United States going back on the promises that it made in that framework? Well, I definitely think some damage has been done, and I have seen indications that the North is aware of this, um, and it's something that factors into their decision-making. So that's a problem, and it's certainly a problem for wider discussions of nonproliferation and disarmament worldwide. That said, though, I think part of the reason they, they want to deal with Nor- with Trump is that they know he's an opportunist out for himself and that his opposition to the Iran deal is really not based in any kind of substantive criticism because the deal works perfectly. Uh, it's based in his hatred of president Obama and of anything that Obama touched. If he accomplishes some deal with the North and he's still in office, I think they probably are, are gambling on the fact that he'll maintain it. Um, and also, he has no understanding of policy details. So, you know, if some of that is fudged, uh, then he probably won't care. Um, so I think, you know, there was there was damage done. But I think Trump, in this case, is, he, he is something of an exceptional figure. And that's part of the reason why the North really wants to deal with him. Um, I don't think they necessarily see him as a mark or someone that they can, like, put one over on, which is the normal way this is talked about. But they do see him as someone who thinks about issues in completely different ways um, and and is completely different than everybody else who's inhabited that office before and who has views that are completely distinct from the the mainstream U.S. foreign policy uh, folks. So they are seeing this as an opportunity to make some progress um, and open up diplomacy with not just with the United States, but I think open up markets with the rest of the world as well. And uh, whether Trump can pull it off clearly (laughs) remains to be seen. Uh, But there is something about him that's just very compelling to them. They see an opportunity with him that they don't see with anyone else. So what's your guess about what happens now? Uh, I mean, I've I've said uh, part of me thinks um, after last week, um, the best case scenario might be to just 
for everybody to just kind of go back to their corners and and wait until the end of this administration, which, you know, the North Koreans, uh, as you say, seem to really like Trump and want to engage with him. But I, I worry that if we get to another, somehow get to another round of diplomacy and a third summit and there's a, another walkout, that we will be back in 2017 and we will be back to, you know, fire and fury and, and the, the high tensions. Uh, so part of me thinks maybe everybody's just better off. The North Koreans kind of don't do any more testing or anything to antagonize, and the Trump administration just runs out the clock, and hopefully we get another administration that will do things that would pick up the ball of diplomacy but do things in a more rational way. On the other hand, based on the way a lot of kind of leading Democrats have responded to this process, maybe we can't really expect that to happen. Uh, what do you think, where do you think things are headed and, and where would you like to see things go? Well, I'd like to see some more full-throated defense or advocacy in favor of diplomacy from from Democrats, particularly from potential presidential candidates and already announced candidates. I think it's to their benefit to announce publicly that they support talks with the North and that they are open to some ideas that are uh, outside the mainstream of U.S. foreign policy discourse. Um, I think openly talking about the prospects of a freeze is uh, with the North is, is a very good idea. And I was actually pleased to see that in, in a recent letter that Senate Democrats did. You know, I, I agree that the Senate Democrats in particular, and some in the House too, have made, to my mind, some kind of unwise interventions into this process um, and used it to make some political points uh, and cheap shots that maybe weren't terribly uh, helpful. Um, but I will say they've moved to a better position. I think that it's pretty clear that they're, um, they understand that military options just aren't feasible and they'd be a total catastrophe and that this has to be solved with diplomacy. I do think it's still a question, though, of whether they're going to be willing to do some of the things um, that are necessary here, like talking directly with the North, potentially talking with Kim Jong-un, um, uh, putting some things on the table that previous administrations haven't been willing to, talking about sanctions relief. These are all things that presidential candidates can be doing right now to signal that this is a process that they'd like to continue. And then if they get into office, they'll be willing to treat the North with uh, the same level of kind of openness that Trump is, even if his own reasons for doing that are basically his own ignorance. So I think that's something I'd like to see. Um, I do think that this is a very kind of volatile, uh, tenuous moment for diplomacy. I'm not sure what's going to happen with the inter-Korean track now that the uh, U.S.-North Korea track has broken down a bit. I don't think it's the end of diplomacy. I mean, the, the good news is that uh, the North didn't respond to this with angry threats or anything like that. Um, the foreign minister gave a somewhat unprecedented uh, uh, public uh, press conference in which he outlined their own position. And then KCNA, the state uh, North Korean media site, uh, was actually quite positive about the summit. It didn't say anything inflammatory. So that kind of signals that the diplomatic window is still open. Uh, but if there isn't any movement on it, you could see uh, some tensions between the U.S. and South Korea. You could see further tensions. You could see tensions between the U.S. and North Korea. And you're right. Getting back to that place in 2017, the, 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 getting back to the place we were at in 2017 would just be a very, very bad development. So I think everybody should be doing what we can to keep things moving forward. You know, it's hard to have faith and we shouldn't have faith in the Trump administration, but we should be making the point that diplomacy is necessary. It's the only way this conflict is going to be solved. And uh, that's the only real path forward. So in that sense, everyone needs to be voicing their support for diplomacy, even while offering constructive criticism uh, for the process as it exists, because clearly there are legitimate criticisms to be made. <laughs> well, on that note, uh... John Carl Baker from Plowshares, thank you very much uh, for being here and uh, for being on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Good talking with you. Okay. Uh, I want to thank John Carl Baker again from Plowshares for uh, coming on to talk with me about North Korea. Uh, as always, I want to thank you for listening, uh, and uh, I'll be back later in the week to talk Iranian revolution. I think we're almost up to 1979 at this point, so that should be exciting. Uh, until then, as always, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. 
take care. Bye-bye.